I have a favorite, I have a favorite scene from a childhood movie that I'm, I'm almost certain all of you will be familiar with. Uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory opens up with the dreams of a young boy who hopes to get out of the squalor that he lives in into a life of hope and opportunity. Little Charlie lives in just a hovel of a home with his washerwoman mother who is barely able to eke out a living with Charlie and her two sets of bedridden grandparents. But something astounding has happened. The great confectioner Willy Wonka has decided to open his factory for a tour to five lucky children. But only the children who receive the golden ticket from his special chocolate bars will be allowed to enter and see inside of Wonka's mysterious factory. Charlie knows that his chance of giving the five, one of the five golden tickets seems slim, but the hope of it is what keeps him going. So finally, Charlie's able to scrape enough money together to buy one of the chocolate bars, only to open it and find out that indeed it did not contain a ticket. Dejected, he walks out to the streets, but finds a dollar there on the ground. And with this hope revived, goes back in, buys another chocolate bar, and lo and behold, he literally strikes gold. He's got the ticket. So he races home to tell his mother and invalid grandparents. Well, clearly, Charlie's favorite grandparent is Grandpa Joe. Joe shares Charlie's love for Wonka's candy and keeps encouraging him to believe that things are going to get better. But at the very beginning of the movie, Grandpa Joe is completely infirm and actually bedridden. But something happens when Charlie comes home with that golden ticket. There is this amazing transformation that takes place in Grandpa Joe. Because he jumps up from the bed, he begins to dance around something that he probably hasn't done in ages, and he bursts into song. I never thought my life could be anything but catastrophe, but suddenly I begin to see a bit of good luck for me because I got a golden ticket. Now look, I think one of the reasons why I get just a little choked up in that scene is because I'm convinced that there is a resonance there with a central truth of the Christian faith. You've heard me say this before, that I believe that Paul is teaching that joy is a far better motivator for human change than guilt or coercion will ever be. So little wonder that what the Apostle Paul sees when he sees the gospel is the same kind of joy. And it results in a transformation of life when we seek to walk in the Spirit. But of course, in these last three chapters, Paul has been sort of talking about his fellow Jews, the nation of Israel. I mean, these were the chosen of God. How is it possible that they have rejected God's unfolding plan and that they persist in unbelief? Well, Paul explains, when you look at it from the perspective of Israel's unbelief on one hand and God's eternal election, it begins to make sense. But Paul's going to go on to say in chapter 11, that's not the whole story that God is telling through Israel. So when finally Paul sees the whole plan laid out in front of him, he does something that actually only happens once in the entire book of Romans. He bursts into song. Look, the ending of Romans 11 is honestly one of the most beautiful expressions of Christian praise that you've got anywhere in the New Testament. And so what I hope this morning is that we can get a little curious. What is it that got Paul so excited? And I think in short, we can say that under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Paul got a glimpse of the whole picture of everything that God is doing in the world from beginning to end. And it struck him as something that was beautiful and overwhelming. 
And so this morning, I hope we can examine the contours of that plan. And I don't know, maybe us have a similar experience to what Paul had, and Grandpa Joe for that matter. So three contours I want to look at this morning. First of all, the blessing to the world, the destiny for the Jews, and glory for God. Let's look at that first one, the blessing to the world. We didn't have time to read through the entirety of the chapter, but if you go back and read through this afternoon, you'll see that Paul opens up with this culmination of an inquiry he's been entertaining about his fellow Jewish countrymen. Look at verse 1. It says, has God rejected his people? That's been the first question he brought up two chapters ago in chapter 9. His reasoning is, if God is the one who, as we said, brings his people all the way home to salvation, well then, why are the Jews still unbelieving? It looks like being the chosen people of God maybe is not so great, right? But of course, after repeating his point from chapter 9, that it actually was, was Israel's unfaithfulness combined with God's eternal election that caused where they are now, Paul then begins to look forward to the future for what's in store for them. And what he finds is astounding. First, he clarifies, just because you see some Jews that are rejecting Jesus, that doesn't mean that all have. Look at verse 5. He says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Look, God always, if you go back to the Old Testament, you read through the prophets especially, you see whenever God is issuing judgment towards a people, he almost always announces though, but you know what? I've held aside a remnant some leftover people, some people who remain faithful. And so Paul is clearly standing in that prophetic tradition here. But this is where it gets exciting. <laughs> because the Jewish rejection of Jesus, Paul says, it's only temporary. It's temporary. Look at verses 11 through 24. Paul lays out in the, that section of this chapter these steps that are going to unfold as God puts together his plan. Here's how it goes. Number, step number one. The Jews are going to reject Jesus. We've seen that. Step number two, the Gentiles then are going to get the gospel of Jesus presented to them. Step number three, the Jews then are going to get jealous of the Gentiles because they begin to see all the blessings that they've received from the gospel. Which leads to step four, where the Jews then themselves, Paul predicts, are going to embrace Jesus and finally become a blessing to the world. Now look. You may not see it on the four, but this, <laughs> this section of this, of this chapter opens a whole can of worms. And Bible students have been arguing over Romans 11 for a while. Uh, and they've studied and a long time dis long about, uh, disagreed about, about what it really means. But for our purposes, <clears throat> just note a couple of ideas here. The first one is this. One commentator said, what you have here, historically speaking in Paul's vision, is spiritual judo. Judo is the technique in martial arts of using the motions of your opponent against them to your advantage. So think of what Paul's doing. Jew, a Jewish person hears that he's supposed to please God. And so he looks at what he does, what oftentimes we do, which is to dive into the law, into the rules, so that we can get ourselves cleaned up. But all the while, he hears these stories of God's grace, and it just doesn't sit well with him. Why? Because it just sounds beneath a God who is holy and majestic to just up and forgive sin. And, and so therefore he starts to reject the gospel of grace. But then the message of grace ricochets off of them. This is what's amazing about what's happening even in Paul's time. 
The message of grace bounces off of religious insiders and it hits the enemies of the Jewish people. You know, those people who you know don't deserve God's grace. But the one thing you cannot deny is you see in them the evidence of a changed life. They have a sincerity that you don't have. They display a love for God that you don't have. Honestly, you resent God if you were to be really honest. They carry a peace around with them that you don't have. And so all of a sudden, a longing comes up in your heart of thinking, if I could only have that. And then the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, brings you to the end of yourself and you throw your hands up and say, I can't do this. God, either you save me by your grace or there is no hope. Now the gospel has come to you and the blessings come to you and start to transform your life. So do you see how these ricocheting blessings of grace between, on the one hand, the religious insiders, people like us, and sort of the pagan outsiders, you know, those people, come together to bring more blessing to more people than you could ever have imagined in your previous mindset. That is spiritual judo. And that's what God is up to at this point. And what I want to stress very importantly, Sorgan Fry and I were talking this week about how we're going to dive into this this coming fall in our study through Genesis this fall. Stay tuned. But it's important to remember that all of what Paul is describing is the culmination of something that was predicted all the way back in Genesis 15 when God called Abraham, the first sort of move into dealing with this ethnic people. And when he goes through these list of promises of the things he's going to do for Abraham, the last thing he mentions is that Abraham's family will be a blessing to the Gentiles. That was at the heart of everything that would come afterwards. In other words, the calling of the Jews was that they were supposed to be reaching out beyond their borders, not remaining enclosed in, in, in religious enclaves to be safe from the people out there. But of course, it took the Holy Spirit coming in and moving <laughs> and taking, irony of ironies, the motions of Jewish disobedience to get the blessings to the Gentiles and fulfill the long-awaited promise to Abraham. I mean, do you see the genius of all this? You've actually already seen it. You, I'm sure you all remember when we studied through the book of Acts last fall, right? And do you remember when we got to the story of Stephen, the deacon, and the first Christian martyr who was murdered for his faith in Jesus? It's interesting. After the church set apart those deacons, they set them apart so that they could take care of the poor. But the text mentions very specifically that during that time, lots of Jewish priests came to come to, became Christians during that. Now, why would it be priests especially? Well, if you go back into the book of Leviticus, you'll find that the priests were the ones who were given most of the charge to take care of the poor in the community. So you see what was happening. The priests were being shown up by these Christians who were taking care of the poor so much better than they were, and it became compelling to them. They saw them doing what they were supposed to be doing, and suddenly they came in. That's exactly what Paul is describing. Do you see that how that's unfolding? Because God, he says, is bouncing his blessing back and forth between Jews, religious insiders, and Gentiles, the pagan heathen, and he's turning the world into a theater of grace and care and redemption and forgiveness. In a word, blessing. And it's a message that's for everybody, not just the privileged few. 
Okay, that's the first idea, this whole idea of blessing to the world. Secondly, though, look at the second one, and that is Paul unpacking the real destiny of the Jews. This is the second part of God's unfolding plan. And Paul starts to unfold it in, in verse 25. Look at this. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. All right, this is where it gets confusing for people. So let's figure out what Paul means and actually what he doesn't mean. First of all, Paul says this is a mystery. Remember, that's a code word for Paul where he uses to talk, that he uses to talk about a secret that used to be hidden but now has been made clear. You know, we didn't know what God was up to, but now we do. And here's what he says. Yes, it is true that presently Jewish people are experiencing the result of their refusal to accept the gospel of grace. Therefore, they have been, and here's the word he uses, hardened. But, Paul says, before it's all said and done, there's going to be a massive influx of ethnic Jews into Christianity. In mass. But that's not coming, he says, quote, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What in the world is Paul talking about? Well, it's important to be very honest that there's been a lot of people who speculate on the base of this about when the world is going to end and when Jesus is going to return. So brace yourselves. Look, when I was growing up, I, I, there was a very popular viewpoint uh, regarding what it meant to be the people of God that assumed that Jews and Gentile believers, which, by the way, would be all of us here, are, are, as it were, on two different tracks, if you will, spiritually speaking. This is the way I was taught. It was, first of all, that God chose Israel as his special people, and, and that Jewish nation continues to be his special people. Secondly, though, but because they rejected Christ, when Jesus came, Christ has, God has set aside his agenda with Jewish people and now to focus on the Gentiles. So thirdly, for the last 2,000 years, we've been in what these theologians call the church age, right? Where we're living the part of this plan of God's dealing with Gentiles. However, one day, God is going to then finish his agenda with Gentiles, pick up what he's doing with the nation of Israel, and return back to ethnic Jews. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying... Well, I don't know, that kind of looks like what it says here in Romans 11. But please notice something about this view. The first thing is, this assumption about there being two peoples of God with two separate ways of referring to him is really just not in this text. Because so oftentimes you have this assumption that, that Jewish people eventually one day are going to overtake Jerusalem. Take it back again. There's even people who have talked about the hopes to construct a new temple. There's even those who would say that we are ready to restart temple sacrifices as the people of God, that those Jewish people eventually do that. It has equally led to, at least among American Christianity, to have an almost exclusive, unquestioned, pro-Jewish Zionist policy that we abide by because they're the chosen people of God. We don't mess with the chosen people of God. Here's my problem. That's not what this text says. <laughs> Look at verse 26 and 27. Paul says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Hold that thought on that word all for a second. 
As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take their sins away. What is Paul doing? He's actually quoting from two places there, one from Isaiah and the other from Jeremiah. And if you go back in context, you'll find that the prophets there are clearly talking about a deliverer that is coming, someone who will take away their sins. Who's he talking about? They're clearly talking about Jesus. Paul is saying that at some point, Israel is going to experience salvation through Jesus Christ, not through some return to an Old Testament sacrificial system that we're waiting to get set up in modern-day Palestine. So look, take note. There are not two tracks to salvation in Paul's mind. There is one way through Jesus into one olive tree. Faith in Jesus has always been essential, regardless of whether someone was born an ethnic Jew or not. Okay, why is this important? Well, I mean, I don't know. Maybe because 80 years ago there was a concerted effort to destroy as many Jews in, uh, in, as possible, something that we now call the Holocaust. And for a while there, in the face of that horrific human indignity, Jewish people were calling on Christians to cease attempts to evangelize them. Why? Because we have special standing with God as well. But there are not two people of God. The path to God is always and only through Jesus. I always thought it was a little ironic that when I was growing up, this idea about towards Jewish people making them sort of outside of the pale, I thought sort of gendered a certain form of anti-Semitism itself because it puts Jewish people on separate spiritual paths rather than inviting them into the simplicity of the gospel that Paul's unpacking. Now look, one last verse before we finish. In verse 32, Paul says, For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now look, there's been a lot of people, and I would even say they're sincere believing people, who have read that verse as if it's an affirmation of what we might call a universal salvation. You know what I mean by that? That Paul is saying that every human being ultimately is going to be redeemed by God. That everyone in the end makes it to heaven. But I also don't think that's what this passage is saying at all. When Paul uses the word all, he does not mean all without exception. That's not the point. He's not saying that every single individual who ever leave is going to be saved and go to heaven. What he means is, is that, by the way, if he meant that, by the way, why would he be exhorting people to be reconciled to God? What would be the point if everybody's going to make it in the end? No, when Paul uses the word all, he means all without distinction. In other words, there'll be all kinds of people that will be saved. Ah, now this is a theme that ought to sound familiar to you from the Apostle Paul. The greatest thrill that Paul writes about over and over again in his letters is that God's salvation is no longer tied to some special privileged people. God's salvation is not available only to the good people or, God forbid, the ethnically uh, pure people. God's salvation is not about the hoops that you jump through in order to get to God. It is fundamentally only about the disobedient coming to faith in Jesus purely by grace. So what he's thrilling over here is that all of the barriers that used to exist between God and his people have finally been torn down. In other words, he's preaching that there's now a free-for-all of God's grace. Access to all have been granted. Everyone's got the possibility. 
And as time flows on, we're going to see that it's going to bring in every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and every ethnicity. And as soon as Paul starts to digest that, he explodes. Which brings me to the third point. This is where it gets great. Because it's not just blessing to the world and destiny for the Jews. It's also about glory for God. Look, you've got to grasp this. Because verses 33 through 36 This is the culmination of everything Paul's been talking about from Romans 1 verse 1. The whole 11 chapters has led us here. And I think actually Paul wants his readers to end up in the same place he has. All right, so but what is that place, right? What is it that has blown Paul up the way it has? Well, look at verse 23. I think this is the trigger. For God has consigned all kinds of people to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now, here's my question. Do you see the irony in that statement? I mean, given the holiness of God, wouldn't you think that human disobedience was the great obstacle to God's plan? But here's the crazy thing. Paul has a plot twist. There's a surprise ending. You're not going to believe this. But God is going to do something that in the end is going to result in a multi-generational, multi-millennial, multi-ethnic God-exalting, grace-centered destiny for all of his people. I get the sense that what Paul has been able to do was, as it were, to sort of climb up a wall and to be able to peer over the wall into what God's purposes are for the future. And it completely freaks him out. And Bear with me. This is just the way my mind works. It reminded me of a scene from a movie. Shocker, right? Do you remember seeing 2001 A Space Odyssey? It's a great old movie, right? Uh, uh, Kubrick did this. And there's this great scene where these uh, astronauts uh, go travel into space and they encounter this giant black monolith, okay, this big rectangle thing. Well, by the end, the astronaut, a guy named David Bowman, realizes that that monolith actually is a stargate that would lead you into all kinds of other dimensions, And in the scene from the book, as he passes through the Stargate, the recorder back on the spaceship picks up his final words. It goes like this. He goes, this thing's hollow. It goes on forever. And my God, it's full of stars. I think that's where Paul is getting at emotionally. He's looking inside something that was more vast and more profound and more not what you would expect than he can ever imagine. And suddenly he just blows up. Paul has had a chance for the door to be cracked open and he peeks in and he sees all of human history from God's point of view and he gasps at the sight of it. And you know it's the Holy Spirit talking. Why? Because it is God-exalting. Everything he says is about God. Oh, the depths, he says. There is no poverty in God. There's only riches of wisdom and knowledge. Oh, the unsearchableness of it all, he says. No one can critique God's plan. God's plan is flawless in its perfection. Oh, the mind of God, he says. No one can ever fathom the laser precision of God's mind on what he's created. Oh, the wisdom, he says. This God is not contingent. This God is not needy. He is not confused. He is not confounded. He is not correctable. He's not thwarted. He needs no advice. He needs no counselor. He needs no assistance. So much so, if there's something that is, it is only subsumed in the greatness of his being. 
And the whole thing resolves in this declaration that Paul says of a past and a present and a future that is all God's. And it's not just that history belongs to God. It is that he is the point of human history. Everything he says is from him. Everything that happens is through him. And everything is flowing towards him to culminate in breathtaking glory. Glory. That's the place where all this is headed. Paul wants for all of his theology, and let's be honest, it's been, it's been work. This spring, it's been work to work through all the terminology and the work and the, the thoughts and the, the mystical things that Paul unpacks for us. But it's all leading to this one thing, that God's people might have an experience of God's glory. And what C.S. Lewis says, and I think this is equally profound, that glory is actually what we've been looking for in every other thing we've been looking for. And I'm not talking about your car keys. I'm talking about that sense sometimes that we feel that we are on the outside of life itself looking in with a longing for something to be resolved. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He says, the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality, this is part of our inconsolable secret. You ever born that secret? That the things that are inside of me don't matter at all? That even when I experience the greatest of joys, they're always mixed with a little bit of sorrow because either A, it's ending, or B, it just wasn't enough? We stand on the outside of all of our desires, but here's what he says. He says, and surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense now described becomes highly irrelevant to our deep desire. For glory meant good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement. But not only that, listen to this, and welcome into the heart of things. I love that. God's grace was a welcome into the heart of things. Something that outside of Christ, we only stand on the outside looking in. Lewis ends with this. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will at last open. That's what Paul saw. That's what got cracked open for him. And he couldn't help but sing. And that singing, what we're going to find next week, began to utterly transform every aspect of his life. It was completely transformational. Look, y'all, this is my point. All of the theology, all the meticulous terminology, all the grappling with concepts, it is all leading to a door that is open in heaven where you can view God himself. And the viewing of that is its own reward. It's also its own transformational element. And getting lost in the great thought of God alone, that's where we're headed. And for that reason, every generation of Christians stands up and longs to get lost in wonder and love and praise. And here's the crazy thing. You can start that right now in just a second. That's an invitation. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we don't want to get lost in that. We're, we see that Paul is awfully excited and we stand on the outside of even that wondering exactly what it is. I don't feel that way because we've got bills and road trips and summer plans and job worries and wayward children. We've got all these things around us that crowd it out. But could there be anything greater, Lord Jesus, than you leading us by the hand to show us the face of your Father? 
that we might see in the glory of God something that puts to shame every other competing worry, every other anxious thought. All, it all gets burned as we begin to see you. Lord, we ask in this final song that we would see what Paul saw, maybe just for a glimmer, maybe just a drop, a stream on earth that we can taste that more deep we will drink above because there to an ocean fullness your mercy does expand. And so, Father, give us a taste of glory, for we ask it this, all in Jesus' name. Amen.